Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, as you know, we love to talk about crazy market stories on this show. And this year's almost over, but I think it's pretty safe to say that the collapse of FTX and the rest of Sam Bankman-Fried's crypto empire was the craziest thing any of us saw this year. And of course, it'll take many months, maybe years to sort out exactly what caused this mess. But we're going to talk to one chief investment officer who has taken a sort of philosophical look at SBF's tolerance for risk and how unusually high it was. But first, Vildana, it's almost New Year's Eve. Do you have any resolutions? I didn't until you just asked me, I guess. And now, now you're coming up with one on the side. Those I'm are always the best resolutions. Yeah. Well, we know that. I belong to a lot of book clubs yes. that I'm not inviting you to. Yes, so yes. my goal for next year will to read more books and join more book clubs that and, I will not and invite st- you and to. still not invite me to. Yeah. That's really just targeted Do harassment. Do you want to be part of them? Targeted harassment. You would probably say no anyway. And then. I don't know. What books are you reading? Right now? Yeah. Any good ones? I'm reading a crime book. Oh, I like crime books. Yeah. It's called Lush Life. Lush Life? Yeah. It's very good, actually. I think maybe the guy had something to do with the wire. So a lot of the dialogue is like oh. very lingo. You David, might like it. David Simon? Is that his no, name? Richard Price. Oh. Okay. Yeah. All right. What What's yours? Oh, I resolve. I'm going to ask all of our guests um, much more complicated questions. Like 50-part questions? 50, 60-part questions, yeah. Are you starting with like today's I've letting, guest? I've, I've been letting them off easy with, with just the 12-part questions. Are you starting with today's guest? We'll see. We'll see. Bring him in. Who are, who are we talking to today? <laughs> it's Victor Hagani. He's the founder and chief investment officer of Elm Wealth, which is an index wealth manager. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Great to be back again. And and I hope you're ready for uh, Mike's Mike's uh, multi-part take, question. Take I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you. So you actually joined us on the podcast earlier this year. So thank you for coming back. But maybe just as a, a little recap, you can just tell us a bit about Elm and what you guys do. Sure. My story is that uh, I started off working in uh, at Solomon Brothers in research in 1984, eventually was a founding partner of LTCM. And uh, after the uh, collapse of LTCM, I stayed around for a little while to help with the unwinding of positions and, and help my partners get a new uh, venture started. And then I took a long sabbatical uh, of 10 years, uh, starting from my late 30s. And um, And I emerged from that sort of with a back-to-basics idea of how I wanted to uh, invest for my own family. And that led to the creation of a wealth management, wealth advisory firm that would share a low-cost, globally diversified, dynamic index investing type of approach uh, with anybody that that wanted to get involved. And so I've been um, running Elm Wealth for 
uh, 11 years, we'll have a partner who's become the CEO, James White. And, um, uh, and we do the, my favorite part of the whole thing besides helping our investors is, uh, doing research and having an, a platform to write about different things going on. And I guess one of our, our articles caught your attentions and hence I'm here. All of, all of your articles caught, catch my attention. <laughs> Thanks, Paul Donna. What caught my, uh, the 10-year sabbatical caught my attention. Me too. That's, I was I like, need, oh, I I'm need jealous. One. I could use one of them, actually. How do I sign up? Uh, well, <clears throat> you've got to, uh, <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to do it the way that I did it. <laughs> but it was one of the best things in my life, for sure, and especially my... Uh, my kids were all young, and I was young, and it was just a great thing that, that I did. But I don't think I would have done it had LTCM not um, failed. So you would have you know, there you have it. Kept working those 80-hour weeks and uh, yeah. gr- grinding it out. Well, let's talk about that uh, piece you wrote. Uh, Valdan and I were both uh, uh, talking about it because it's. I love it when people take this sort of more philosophical sort of 30,000 view of stories like this uh, rather than, you know, picking apart the weeds, because I think there's a lot to be learned from that sort of uh, approach. And and this this one's called a missing piece of the SPF puzzle. And you talk about um, what you call the classic theory of choice under uncertainty. Talk to us about what that means and, and how it plays out in, in real life and investing. Sure. So, you know, I mean, some people think that the uh, that the start of uh, financial decision making was uh, around 300 years ago when Daniel Bernoulli uh, and and some of his family and, and friends uh, were debating the St. Petersburg paradox. It's a game where the expected value of the game is uh, infinite, but anybody that takes a look at it would would uh, you know would say, well, okay, it has an infinite expected value, but I don't think I'd pay more than you know, $10 to play it. And the way that the game would work is, or works, is that uh, you flip a coin and um, you, your payoff is the number of uh, heads that you get in a row is, well, uh, two to the number of heads that you get in a row. So if you flip uh, one head and then the next one is tail, that's one head in a row and you get paid $2. And then if you flipped, uh, you know, three heads in a row, that would be uh, you know, eight eight dollars that you would get, and so you could see that um, the probability of that occurrence is uh, the reciprocal of the payoff, and so the expected value is infinite. But you're not going to get a hundred heads in a row that would give you a massive payoff, and people realize that, and they say, well, okay, you know that I'll I'll play this game, but I wouldn't pay an infinite amount for it. And so Bernoulli uh, thought about well, how can we reconcile that? It seems like, you know, what, what's going on here? And he realized and put forward the idea that the uh, marginal benefit that we get from more and more wealth goes down with each additional unit of wealth, this idea of the decreasing marginal utility of wealth. And he modeled that in a very simple way. He said, well, what if my the utility that I get from wealth is equal to the natural log of wealth. That's just one function which goes up, but it goes up at a a decreasing uh, pace. Then you get a solution to the St. Petersburg uh, valuation, you know, which is I'd pay a tiny bit of of my wealth to play it. But it really took off again in the 1940s when uh, uh, John von Neumann, the polymath, and the economist uh, Oscar Morgenstern came together and wrote a book that uh, put forward a logically reasoned proposition that if we maximize our expected utility, that that tells us the right decisions to make under uncertainty. And that's really the beginning of this classic theory of choice. You know, I think most people feel that way. 
And economists have developed that and brought it up to now. And, and basically, we don't need a fancy theory to know that when we're faced with uh, some coin flips that we don't want to bet, even if the odds are in our favor, that we don't want to bet all of our wealth on heads coming up each time, even if heads has a 60% chance of coming up. It's like some biased coin uh, thought experiment. And so, you know, what's what's really interesting in this whole SBF case is that he was sort of on record on a number of occasions of saying that that his conclusion was that he should make decisions as if as though he had no risk aversion, uh, basically maximizing the expected value of his choices, you know, making a choice that would maximize the expected value of his wealth, which he intended to give away, he said, uh, rather than trying to maximize this this expected utility. Have you ever encountered anyone? I mean, maybe if your goal is to make a lot of money and give it away is the only only chance you have that kind of risk tolerance. Have you ever encountered anyone with that sort of blinders on to risk like he is sort of hinted at. No, although I I have heard some people say that their approach to making decisions under uncertainty is to take a certain amount of their money and put it aside in treasury bills and that's safe. And if they lost everything else, they would be really happy that they had that. And then to be really uh, aggressive with risk with that discretionary amount that they had above what they put away. But when you but but when I've met a few of these people in conversations, we've talked about it, that when I really analyzed the decisions that they were making with that discretionary capital, they were nowhere near risk neutral. It was just their way of of, uh, sort of thinking about things, but they still were sort of had a normal level of risk aversion. And it's interesting, I mean, that in practice, people have not used this expected utility theory very much. It's not used much in the financial planning industry, for instance. Uh, and and one of the criticisms is, oh, it's really hard for people to calibrate or to uh, express their utility function. But actually, what we've found is that when we talk to people about risk taking and you know expected compensation for taking risk, that people fall into a reasonable kind of range of risk aversion that most people seem to be in. You know, we don't really see this uh, incredibly high risk aversion where people don't want to take any risk in the face of nice opportunities. Or even more rare than a high risk aversion is this super low risk aversion where it's like, just let me, you know. YOLO, I think the kids call it these. (laughs) YOLO, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Although, you know, I guess that uh, a gambling addiction in some ways, right, is, you know, I'm not really talking about pathological conditions. I mean, if you have a gambling addiction, you know, that's a different story, I guess. And, you know, maybe those people are characterized by having a risk-seeking. They, uh, they don't generally r- rise to the level of, uh, you know, uh, owner and CEO of a major yeah, financial yeah, company. Yeah, yeah. Worth $32 billion <laughs> right. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So had you been thinking about this all along? Because he has been very media-friendly, not just recently, obviously, after the fallout, but all along he had been sort of out and about talking to people about, you know, him wanting to give away his wealth and his very low risk aversion? A little bit. Um, so actually, the um, the place where I came across expected value being used in a way that I thought wasn't quite right was was actually in some of this effective altruism literature. There's this one discussion that uh, I read about three or four years ago where there was an argument that uh, that we should all vote, not because we have a civic duty to do so, but actually that if you think that your vote has this tiny, tiny chance of making a difference in the outcome of the election, that if you think that the election of the people and the policies that you support would make uh, hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars of difference to the world, 
then you should just vote based on that small probability because the expected value of your vote, the small probability times this big outcome is a really is a big positive number and you should that should motivate you to get out of bed and go vote. And so that's using expected value for a lottery like payout. I think that analysis is not quite correct. You know, I think that that huge payout that you would get, which you would automatically be giving to charity because it wouldn't actually come to you, uh, needs to be discounted by the fact that you have a marginal uh, decreasing utility of, of, of wealth, even when you're giving it away. You know, and I think that's kind of really an interesting part of the SBF case. Right. Now, Victor, I, I wonder if you think back to uh, the long-term capital management days, and boy, I guess it's almost 25 years now since uh, since all that happened. Um, you know, in if you were to make a Venn diagram of FTX and LTCM, or is there are there any overlaps there? And and one thing I, I'm thinking of is, I would guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would guess if you asked everyone involved at LTCM uh, back then, are you taking too much risk? The answer would be no. We, we're not. You know, we're not taking on too much risk. It's just our positions got so big, right? And, and that was really what led to the trouble. And at FTX, you have this scenario where they had this massive position in this coin they invented themselves, the FTT token, where where they're also the big whale in in that uh, position of that asset. But I don't know. Is are, are there any sort of overlaps of the two that spring to mind from from your experience at LTCM and your uh, what you've been able to observe with FTX? Well, first, you know, as you said earlier, we don't really know exactly what happened at FTX. I mean, one thing that seems to be the case is that Alameda had bad trading results at some point and lost, seems to have lost a lot of money. The one thing that we know is that, that SBF was out there saying that he was, you know, that he was in favor of making decisions with a very low or no risk aversion at all. So, you know, at LTCM, we we were risk averse. Uh, we were uh, we were not thinking to we were not looking to maximize expected value, but we were looking to maximize risk adjusted return, and so that's that's a difference. But you know what I what I would say is that you know investing involves two types of decisions, right? One of them is find the good investments, find the things that are that you think are going to give a good return, a good risk adjusted return. And, uh, and try to buy those things and find the other things. If, if you're running a long short, find things that aren't good and sell those or go short those or whatever. So that's the part of the process that's identifying and evaluating different assets and different investments. And, and that's really where almost all of the attention of people goes. And, uh, and th- but there's this other decision that we have to make, which is how big. Once we've figured out the, the, uh, what are the good and bad things, then we need to figure out how much of those trades do I want to put on? And especially if we can use leverage or options or derivatives, uh, you know, we have quite a lot of flexibility in terms of how much of them we can buy and sell. We may not be constrained by just how much capital we have to invest, but we could own more, or go short or whatever. And that sizing decision doesn't get as much attention, doesn't get a lot of treatment in universities and finance programs and so on. And Yet, that's the one that's more critical because if you, even if you can find the right investments, but you do them in too large a size, that can end in failure. Uh, whereas actually, if you find the wrong investments, but you size them correctly, it's not a happy outcome for you, but it's survivable and you go on and, and you have enough capital to spend or to support yourself or whatever. So, you know, I think that it seems likely that Alameda uh, took too much risk, that 
guided by this principle of maximizing expected value coming from the top or the the owner. Um, however, he came to that decision, which we'll talk about more. Um, and he took too much risk, and the result was that they lost money. I think at LTCM, you know, inadvertently we wound up with positions that were too big that that they wound up uh, getting themselves sort of uh, related to each other just right. by the fact that we own them, right? So when, as soon as we got into sort of trouble, like an, an artificial correlation almost just from yeah, I mean there was there were some you know deeper uh, deeper reasons for them to be correlated in some cases, but in many cases you know they they should have been going in the opposite direction, and they got correlated because we own them. And but anyway, it was it was too much risk. Uh, you know, I don't think there's any disputing that. So I think that's you know a, a parallel. But I would say mostly that it's you know I don't that that I think that mostly they're sort of separate circles. <laughs> yeah. And you know, in particular, yeah. this you know our approach was you know to be very aware of risk, and you know sometimes you 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 don't get it right, and uh, you know as opposed to a policy of maximizing expected value, which you know which I think is what was going on there. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So let's talk a little bit more about how SBF, Alameda, FTX, all of this actually happened. Because in your note, you have this amazing sentence that says, when SBF's stated preferences encounter the real world, it results in almost surely going bust at some point, and pretty quickly for someone who knows their way around financial markets. Yeah, so I think a great example to just just to work through a little bit is, you know, at one point, SBF has a, a Twitter thread where he says, if I were faced with an opportunity that had a, uh, a 10% chance of a big payoff and a 90% chance of um, going to zero, well, he said, I wouldn't invest 100% of my capital in that one trade because um, you know, I'd like to be able to do it again afterwards, find another one like that afterwards. Uh, but I would put like 50% of my capital into that. And that's very, very risk tolerant. That's not quite going all the way to a stated preference of being risk neutral and trying to maximize expected value. But that's really being, you know, extremely risk tolerant. And so 
from that, you could sort of say, well, what if he found five of these to do in a row? Well, you know, if he did five of them in a row, his probability of of losing five times in a row, you know, 50% of his money five times in a row, which would leave him with, I don't know, 5%, you know, 95% loss, you know, would be probably over 50, you know, close to 50% in that ballpark, right? You know, 10% chance of that happening every time. So you can kind of see how it, you know, even in a world where you could find some amazing, you know, which I don't think exists. I've never seen an investment opportunity that has a 10% chance of making a thousand times my wealth or something like that. I've never come across it, never seen it. Uh, But even if you could find those things, if you bet in that way, you have a very, very high probability of, uh, of losing, you know, all, all of your money. Um, you know, Victor, I'm smiling here because I'm thinking of uh, the clients of Elm Partners out there listening to this and going, oh boy, Victor, what has he got my, what's he got me into crypto and coin flips and <laughs> talking about losing all my money once. But so let's pivot it to, to what's really in your wheelhouse here. And that's, that's those boring old regular markets. And, you know, we talked about how uh, sort of having no limit for your risk tolerance can cause these spectacular blowups. I do feel like for the average Joe investor, whether it's a 401k or an IRA or, or you know, your, your, your basic nest egg investor, that maybe having too much uh, fear of risk is, is, is a bigger issue and, and not sort of, uh, you know, being willing to take on risk. And, I, and I'm thinking this, especially after the year that we've had in the stock market and the bond market for that matter. Um, you know, the year's not over yet, but I think it's a safe bet to say that uh, we're going to close on a, you know, a down year in the, in the equity market. It's pretty rare to have two down years in a row. I think uh, the dot-com collapse was one. Uh, 1970s, I think was the last time before that. Is that too simplistic of a view of the equity market right now uh, to, to assume that you can't have two down years in a row? Um, or, you know, is that, is that an enticing entry point to you? And, and what, you know, what would you call, uh, what would you tell a client who, who called you up and was asking you what to do here on January 1st when it's time to, to think about the next year? So the way that we like to look at it is, uh, the way that we like to look at investing is really thinking that the main, uh, risky asset that investors have access to is diversified portfolios of global equities, U.S. equities and non-U.S. equities. And, the low risk things that they want to come that we should compare those expected returns to are uh, government bonds. You know, I would say in particular for long term investors, it would be uh, tips, inflation protected bonds, giving a uh, a long term uh, real yield in excess of inflation or below inflation if their yield is which, negative. Which they're finally doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah back to positive, thankfully. <laughs> uh, you know, or treasury bills or government bonds, whatever. But, you know, that's sort of your your uh, low-risk alternative. So we need to look at equities relative to the low-risk alternative because it's an either-or thing, that either we have more equities or we have more safe assets. And so when we look at that today, let's say we look at uh, tips today. So long-term tips are yielding about 1.2% in that ballpark, uh, much higher than they were uh, a year ago when on, they were on negative. A, on a real yield basis. The right? real yeah. yield. So yeah. they w- so if you bought them, they would give you, uh, and also pre-tax, they would give you 1.2% above whatever inflation turned out to be. So in this past year, when CPI inflation ran at 8%, they actually were giving you, they would give you a 9.2% return if we got another 8% of inflation ahead of us. And then we need to think about, well, what do equities offer? So we could look at U.S. equities and using the cyclically adjusted earnings yield. So if we buy equities, we're getting a certain amount of expected earnings from them. 
And, you know, if we try to just guess at what earnings are likely to be by looking over the past 10 years and averaging that together, you know, I think that U.S. equities have an earnings yield right now of around uh, f- around 4% or a little bit lower than that. You know, it's gone up as the equity markets come down. And so, you know, we're getting around a 3% e- expected extra return from, or maybe it's 25 to 3% extra return from owning U.S. equities rather than owning tips. And then we say, well, is that, how how attractive is that? It's okay. I mean, you know, it's two and a half, three percent extra return. It's nice, but it's not so nice that we'd want to have a lot of it. So from with that starting point, we are underweight U.S. equities for our clients because we don't think that that two and a half to three percent is great. And then we also want to think about the risk of U.S. equities. And, uh, you know, we could look at their volatility or we, you know, we prefer to look at their momentum as a proxy for risk and momentum in U.S. equities is still negative, even though it's getting closer to neutral. So between those two things, we would be underweight U.S. equities. And applying those same ideas to non-U.S. equities, uh, we would be overweight them, even though uh, risk and momentum is negative, uh, causing us to want less of non-U.S. equities. Their earnings yields are quite high. US, Non-U.S. equities have done really poorly over the last 10 years and are offering quite high you know, earnings relative to the price you pay for them. So we would be uh, we're a little bit overweight, uh, just slightly overweight non-U.S. equities and underweight U.S. equities and altogether underweight equities. So we have about, in our typical client portfolios, we have between 50 to 60 percent of the portfolios are in low-risk assets right now. Whereas uh, back in the middle of 2021, we were probably like 90 percent of the client portfolios were invested in risky assets and only 10% in low-risk assets. So I don't think it's a great time for equities, prospectively, relative to safe assets. And I don't, and I think that, yeah, I mean, we could definitely have two years in a row of negative returns. A lot of that will probably hinge on what the Fed does and what happens to long-term interest rates. And I, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that all your listening to uh, Sam Bankman-Fried podcast did not make you more bullish on crypto uh, to, to, allocate, <laughs> to allocate anything to crypto. <laughs> Just going to go out on a limb and, and guess that. But uh, Victor, how did 2022 play out? In ter- Obviously, we have the benefit of hindsight. Uh, but how did it turn out in terms of what you had been expecting? Our approach to investing was was pretty good for our clients. Our clients, uh, I don't know, re- client returns until now are, I don't know exactly the right number, uh, under ten percent of of losses on average over the uh, over the year, which is better than a sixty forty portfolio, or it's it's much better than if they just had a static portfolio based on our baseline. But I am surprised by how sort of Goldilocks things seem to be right now that uh, the um, interest rates, you know, that if we went back, you know, over a year ago, nobody saw 400 basis points of uh, 4% increases in interest rates coming. We got that. Wow, that was a big surprise. And sure, interest rates, long-term interest rates are higher, but they're not so much higher. And people are expecting that the Fed is going to raise rates a bit more and then dramatically bring rates down by a couple of percent starting in the middle of next year and bringing them all the way back down because inflation is going to get under control. And in all of this, we're not going to have a massive recession and companies, uh, corporate earnings are going to be okay. And uh, so, you know, it, it, you know, I think that if I knew, if all that you told me was that, uh, you know, inflation picked up, 
dramatically as it has done, and that economic growth had been strong, and that the Fed raised rates by 4%, I would not have guessed that markets would look the way that they do right now. So it's been a surprise in that sense. And I suppose it almost always is, but yeah, it's quite surprising. They passed a law somewhere, Victor, where we have to ask every guest uh, about their their outlook for inflation. Uh, you this is a law. It's a new, it's a new <laughs> law. You don't strike me as the type of guy who's going to, you know, uh, try to predict where it's going, but rather react and and sort of play the cards on the table. Is, is that right, or do you have a, an inflation uh, forecast in mind? Well, yeah. So I guess that um, that that's you're you're right. I mean, my starting point is to look at the break-even inflation rate between tips and nominal bonds. Is to you know think about some of these surveys that come out where and the uh, break-even show a normalization. They do. I mean, long-term break-evens are uh, where is it? they're they're under three percent. I mean, we have uh, what thirty you know thirty-year tips are around just over one percent, and thirty-year nominal bonds are uh, just below 4%, right? right? So yeah, so we're, you know, in the in the mid to high twos. Half, yeah. But also there should be sort of a risk premium in all of that, right? Because to take inflation, you know, it's not really, whatever that number is, it should be a bit of an overestimate of what people are really expecting for inflation. But that's, you know, sort of mid twos. And then, you know, these inflation surveys are coming out sort of mid twos as well. So I guess I I wouldn't want to go too far out on a limb, but you know I think that those are uh, underestimates of what's going what we're going to see in terms of inflation. I think that the forces that gave us uh, so much uh, low inflation or the deflationary forces of the last couple of decades uh, have slowed a lot or have the reversed in some globalization cases. Globalization and the, the globaliz- technology yeah, and that type yeah, of thing. And, demographics. And, and, yeah, and. Uh, so, you know, and I think that there are these lags, you know, like by the time that my barber, actually, I, I don't go to a barber, I, I just buzz my own hair. But if I did go to a barber, That's I know that, there for, for the barbers. But I do know that, you know, there's just a lot of um, uh, businesses that haven't raised, that haven't gotten around to raising prices yet. And, uh, you know, so I think there's still a lot, a lot more that we'll see, at least in the near term, before it really pans out. Uh, you know, I mean, things like oil is, are a big wild card in the whole thing. I mean, if oil comes down to thirty dollars uh, a barrel, then yeah, uh, you know, we're going to see some some big changes, some you know, a big downward move in in uh, headline inflation anyway. But assuming you know that things stay where they are, I think that uh, I'd, I'd be a little bit more bearish on inflation than what the markets are telling us. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. 
Com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Well, with that, Victor, the good news and maybe bad news for you is that uh, we can't let you go until you participate in our gimmick or tradition, not a gimmick, tradition. Both. Both. Of the craziest thing we saw in markets this weekend. It's, it's, you know, New Year's, so it can be the craziest thing you saw in the past year, I'd say. So my craziest thing is probably not that crazy. And I've and when I've pointed this crazy thing out to people, I find that I get kind of like a, a bit of a negative reaction from them, even though I'm telling them some good news. And so maybe that's the really crazy part <laughs> of what I'm going to say. But 2022 has been a tough year for investors that, you know, we've uh, that, you know, even if you're doing well, your portfolio is probably down 10 to 15 percent. You know, bonds are down close to 15 percent. Equities are down close to 15 percent. It's been hard to avoid being down 10 to 15 percent. And if you were really concentrated in some bad thing, the things that did poorly, then um, you would even be worse. But let's say you're down, you know, 10 to 15 percent on your portfolio. Well, then you say, gosh, you know, it's actually much worse than that because uh, in real terms, I'm down another 8% because prices of everything are higher, assuming uh, that CPI is relevant rather than some other index that could be worse, although the haircut index would be better. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so you know, the, the typical investor and myself, for instance, among them, uh, you know, I'm down, uh, let's say, just over 20% on a real basis, that the real purchasing power of my uh, wealth is down 20% in 2022, roughly. Well, that sounds terrible. You know, that really is bad. But the crazy thing about it is that what we really care about is the real, the inflation-adjusted real income stream, long-term income stream that we can generate from our wealth. So our wealth is down 20% in real terms, does that mean that we're going to be able to spend 20% less over the next 30 years? Well, actually, the surprise or the crazy thing is that because interest rates have gone up so much from a year ago, from minus 1% to just over 1% today, and I'm talking again about real interest rates, that actually the long-term income stream that we could generate from our wealth is probably 10% higher than it was 12 months ago, which I think is just it is a crazy, crazy thing because everybody's sort of, you know, moping around yep. like this sucks. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm down and then I'm down more because of inflation. But actually, uh, and, and, and this well, and, result and that the whole outlook for the pension industry is, is turned around because of this, right? Oh, that's a great point. That's a really great way to see it, right? Yeah. Is that pensions are less underfunded because they're liabilities. That's a great point, which I kind of was I, I forgot to bring that up. That's a really great perspective to think about it, that for pension funds, 
they're better off in general because their liabilities have gone have been reduced by more than their assets and and we're like little pension funds ourselves right, with right, our savings right. so i think that's crazy who knew the the solution to the pension crisis was <laughs> you know uh, the, the worst bear markets in stocks and yeah, bonds yeah. well if the you know it doesn't have to be that way if equities had gone down a lot more if we were down 40% in our portfolios then we wouldn't right, be able right. to say that you right. know that it's just that we're only down, you know, fifteen to twenty percent uh, in real terms. That allows that to be the case. But I do think that the really weird part about it is what people's reactions are. It's like, leave me alone. I just want to be. <laughs> can't you just let me be miserable? I know I'm down. I don't believe you. This is ridiculous. You know, there's something wrong with your analysis, or maybe there's a tax effect that you're not talking about. But you know, I think that's kind of the funniest part about it is that it just. It does not it seem to. Yeah. It does not seem to make anybody happier. But I thought I'd share that. Um, <laughs> there's definitely a lot of other crazy things going on, and God knows what, in options markets and and all of that. Right, but right. I, this is the one that oh, I, I feel I is that. sort of the That's most really interesting. Good. That's a good way to. I don't want to follow it. And allow and allows a year on a high note for sure. Well, let's hear it, Vildana. Have you ever had a pet rock? <laughs> As a matter of fact, I am of the age where, yes, I did have a. In fact, I think we made them. Did in you have like a collection? Fifth, fifth grade, uh, fifth grade art class or something. Uh, but I think I know where you're going with this one, and it's, it's good. It's not. It's not uh, of the past year, but it's more representative of like the big stories of the past year. So Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan, he said, "Crypto is like pet rocks." And I just love it because when you think of pet rocks, they're so they're cute, right? Yeah, yeah. And people, I and I wanted to ask you if you had a pet rock. I of course I did. Yeah, yeah. they were big <laughs> '80s thing. He said, "Why do we allow this stuff to take place?" The big things in in the '80s were the parachute pants. I don't you know what that is. They're like these vinyl. I don't know what that like pants made out of parachute. Did material you collect that them? No, my parents wouldn't wouldn't let me get any, so I didn't. Have did any. you have beanie? But they babies? were very hot. But uh, now they're they're w- way past my time. But I've heard crypto compared to the beanie. I think the beanie babies is a better comparison because there was an active market for beanie babies and there was manipulated prices. And, you know, people trying to corner the market and all that. I don't know if pet rocks ever. What do people do with their pet rocks? I, I think you just sat it on your desk and then yeah. eventually make it into the garden. Uh, yeah, no. exactly. <laughs> right. right. Path, I don't think there was a, a big secondary market for it. But <laughs> hey, Jamie Jamie Diamond knows better than me. He maybe he's securitized. He's them, been hating uh, on crypto for a long yeah, time. So yeah. and he kind of warmed up a little bit there, but then he, he's second. reverted back in. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he said blockchain yeah, is great or something. He was uh he was right all along probably. But um all right, I like that one. That's pretty good. All right, well Don, I'm gonna start mine with a trivia question. Okay. Do you know you know who Hugh Hefner is? Yeah right? of course. Was Hugh Hefner a member of the 2000 Los Angeles Lakers? No. <laughs> well, it's taking you a minute to answer that. <laughs> you really had to think about that. He was like 60 in 2000, probably. <laughs> he was, but he was the owner of a championship ring from the 2000 Los Angeles Lakers that was gifted to him by their owner at the time. Uh, what, was, what was the owner's name? Jerry Buss gave him their 2000 championship ring LA Lakers I'll show you a picture of it it's the ugliest ring I've ever seen this picture is perfect <laughs> for the podcast audience who cannot podcast, see, it. Can't see it we can describe it a little bit it's like it's got all these diamonds it says world champs it's golden diamonds it looks like something Mr. T would wear you'd think just the intrinsic value of the the raw materials in it I think you know where it's, we're going with this yes you know where we're going I know where we're going Victor where, probably doesn't yeah, we're don't. going to the price is precise the price is precise Hugh so Hefner just traded it. 
it's it's up for auction, so we don't the uh, price discovery on it is not perfect. It's early bidding, four days left in the bidding, and mind you, and and this is we're we're recording in the middle, middle of December here, so uh, keep that in mind with Victor's numbers about how down far down the market is this year. We could be double that by the, <laughs> by the end of the year. Victor's going to look at why well, I can't let you see it, Victor, because oh, oh because you got the you price guess, that way. You got to get two bids in. What do you suppose the prevailing bid is for Hugh Hefner's L.A. Lakers championship ring? Remember, this was the this is a heartbreaking team for me. It had Shaq, Kobe, and they went on the, the dismantle my 76ers a few years later. This is the first of three three championships in a row for this team. Wow. And Hugh Hefner got a ring. I, I don't know. I'm how. going with 1.75 million. 1.75 million. Okay. Oh, gosh. And remember, playing price is precise. So if you go over... I win. Okay. Oh wow. All right. You just jumped out there wow. right what ahead. What did you say? One one point seven five. Yeah. Wow. All right. I, I was going to give a little more details. Oh. That, you know. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, two bids in. Four days left in the auction. The auction house is SCP. Victor, what do you think? You can take just that the... was not a lot of extra good details. All is right. SCP Sotheby's or somebody else? I don't. You know, that's a good question. Uh, I don't think so. I think it's some some um. Uh, collectibles focused wow. online. Gosh, this is such a tough one. I mean, I guess you've got the uh, you know that that having Hugh Hefner's ring could be good or bad. You know, depending right, on your yeah, whole thing. That, that's, and then, uh, but um, I, I, you know, I'm just gonna have to go. I low. Also, well, I'm gonna say one more thing. Oh, remember they won three more. They won three championships. A lot of guys on the team. If even Hugh was get there, so, it's not that rare. Right. I was going to say oh, that there's a lot on. of. Come <laughs> on. <laughs> well, I did say I was going to go low. So I, I, but I'm not going to go. I'm not going to be obnoxious and just you know undertick you because that wouldn't. Go be ahead. Fair. No, no, you no, can. no, I wouldn't do no, that. No, I would love it. No, no, I'm going to. I'm going to go with what I was sort of thinking because I think that's the honest thing to do. Like we, we probably should have written our things yeah. down. So I was. Like I was going to go something, you know, in the two fifty thousand range for it, you know, and and even thinking that's a little bit high. So that's where I would. Can be. I revise? <laughs> you always, you know, yes, go for every it. Every time she hears the other bid, she wants to revise. One point six million. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Okay. Where is it? I will tell you something to remember in future episodes of the Price is Precise. Sometimes the crazy thing is that it's not as high as you think. Oh, come on. 8200 bucks so far is the top what? thing. <laughs> Look you at this win. thing, Victor. I mean, just the, 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 raw, ma <laughs> the raw materials alone, that's got to be uh, wow. 20 grand worth of diamonds alone. I don't know. Yeah, you could get that ring and turn it into two nice and earrings the, or something. The, the <laughs> so uh, maybe to your point, Q is not a... 8200 well, I think I think in fairness, though, maybe you... You know that in a l later podcast you'll say what it sold for, it, yeah. and then, it's, and then it's, Vildana it's, will be vindicated. It'll be it'll likely be higher than <laughs> we this, can take so. all of our big podcast money and go and, and yeah, buy this. We can bid, we can bid, bid it up. We can bid yeah. it up. Yeah, right. <laughs> all this crazy money we're Unshared. making. So there you go. That's my craziest thing. Uh, but can I say because you you always have auctions for craziest thing? Yeah, and it's I would a market. It's a, no for it sure. But I would think that. The, the craziness there would have gone down since last year, and some of them have been obnoxiously I, I, crazy. You're right. You're right. They, the froth is still yeah. there in the crazy market <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for, yeah. for some reason. And, you know, maybe it's always there. I mean, maybe some of these things, uh, you're, you're dealing with a different stratosphere of wealth and investors. Yeah. There's only so many to start with. And, yeah, but the know. froth does seem to be coming down. In fact, a cousin of mine who lives in Los Angeles will be really happy if I mention he's been following classic car auctions and he's been 
noting that so many of the cars, much more than in the past, are not getting to the reserve price, which you know is indicative of a market where the sellers are like, "Well, come on, this is a great car and should be at least worth this right, much." Right. You know, and 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 you know, we know that the auctioneers are trying to push them to make deals happen, but. Yeah. You know, we're, we're in some sort of an adjustment period for sure. That's interesting. Yeah. It's funny the different lenses to look at the sentiment and, and market valuation. Fascinating stuff. NFT. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Victor Hagani from Elm Partners. Uh, so great to catch up with you and hear your thoughts. It's always uh, very educational. Oh, and, thank you so much uh, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.